The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Do overs, but okay. <laughs> okay. So welcome to um, today's Eightfold Path Mentoring Program session on Right Livelihood. Uh, my name is Kim Allen, and I haven't been uh, to this group for a while, so it's nice to be back and see all of you. And uh, my co-teacher today is um, Jim Podolsky, who I think you've seen a bit recently. So we're delighted, actually, to be offering this topic. Um, We represent different aspects of livelihood between the two of us, which we hope will kind of cover some of the possibilities, because this is actually a very broad topic. Um, A lot of people think of livelihood as just, you know, your job. But there's really a lot more to it. That's The Buddha had something much deeper in mind when he talked about right livelihood. So I hope this will be an interesting day of exploration that maybe broadens your view also of this important path factor. So I think I'm going to pass it over to Jim, actually, to do some um, Q&A and other things from that might be on your mind from the previous sessions as we... Um, use this factor as kind of the culmination of the series on ethics of speech, action, and livelihood. So we've made it to the peak now. <laughs> you have anything to introduce? Well, good morning. No, it's morning somewhere, but... I guess it's afternoon here. Um, so wanted to just kind of briefly review the, the program so far. So we've uh, started off with covering the, the first two wisdom elements of the Eightfold Path, you know, right view and right intention. And, you know, those are really about having some kind of initial insight that there's some value in um, looking at the suffering in our lives. That that rather than trying to figure out better ways to avoid looking at it, that there might actually be value in turning towards the suffering. And then also doing it with a sense of um, goodwill for ourselves and others. Right. So the right intention is really to be kind of live uh, uh, in a way that we let go of the things we don't need and that we can live, uh, approach our lives um, with a sense of goodwill and uh, harmlessness. So those were the first, the first um, grouping. And then we're now on the third of the second grouping, which has to do with ethics, how we treat other people. So we covered... Um, right speech two months ago, and then right action last month, and this month we'll be covering right livelihood, which as um, Kim had mentioned, to a certain extent covers how we support ourselves in this world. How do we, how do we get our needs met, either through work or um, other types of relationship and but also it can be broadened 
to include um, what do we do with our time? How are we living our lives? And so that's what we're going to explore today. Um, before we go into that, I thought, as people are still arriving, that we'd uh, allow time for any questions that may have come up over the last month about, maybe in particular, about right action, which was our uh, element of the month, but uh, any questions you might have. So uh, feel free to raise your hand and we'll get you a microphone and... Um, In contemplating everything and particularly on, I think, on right action, just for me, there's a lot of gray areas. Um, and sometimes I don't know <laughs> which side I, I fall on those gray areas. But one thing that just came to my mind, which is, you know, a debatable topic, but, um, you know, one time I found an injured bird in the parking lot and I brought it to the Humane Society and it turned out it had this really contagious disease that can spread to other birds. And they put it down before I even had a chance to offer to take it. They just said, you know, it has to be put down for the good of mm -hmm. others. And, um, you know, and that's a thing I think about, like, do no harm, but where are you not doing the most harm too, and how do you make those decisions? And I wouldn't have wanted to be the person that have had made that call, mm -hmm. for sure. Do you want to respond, Kim? Or well, I, I um, so I'll, first I'll give you what comes to me. So first of all, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. Um, I've heard it explained that. We should start, this apparently was a teaching that the Buddha gave his son, Rahula, about, first of all, before you take an action, contemplate, is this going to cause harm? And if it is, don't do it. And then, if, if that's not true, then you start doing the action. And if in the midst of the action, you notice that it's causing harm, then um, to stop. And if you've already done the action, and it's all over, you can still contemplate and say, was there any harm done? And if so, make a resolution not to do that in the future. So that's sort of an idealized scenario. Um, you know, the truth is, you know, we have to use our limited knowledge of what's going to... to, to um, <coughs> to make the decision of what we think is going to cause the least harm. And so this, this person at the bird rescue probably, you know, had to, had to face what's going to be the better, what's going to cause the least harm. Um, yeah, we don't really know, do we? But... I think, I think the important part is to ask the question, 
you know, is to really be oriented towards, um, you know, thinking our action, you know, I mean, one thing you could think of is, um, what is this going to get me, you know, or how am I going to profit from this, or, um, you know, there's a lot of questions like that that wouldn't be so skillful, but asking the one about harm is, is great. Kim, did you? I don't have a lot to add to that answer, but I appreciate that you started out by saying that you had noticed a lot of gray areas, and that speaks to what Jim said about the most important thing is to ask the question, in that I think what the Buddha is encouraging, and through this contemplation that he offered to Rahula also, is that um, not to treat our life as something where there's kind of a set of rules or principles that we're just operating by abstractly, and that actually ethics is a lot more interesting than that. It's not a set of rules or commandments or uh, things that we can know ahead of time even what is going to be exactly the right thing in a situation. We need to be aware. We need to have mindfulness and respond in that moment based on those conditions what is going to be the least harmful as far as we can tell with the information we have. So it puts the responsibility on us And you'll notice in the Rahula story that it nicely doesn't place a lot of blame in that we are, we're supposed to act. You know, as long as we think there isn't harm about to be done, it says go ahead and do the action. And then if it turns out that there was, then you correct in the future. But it's, it's very allowing in the sense where it's experimental. And so I I think it's very useful to hold ethics this way. And and to go over it and remember these stories because this is actually different from often from the way people have been taught ethics growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there was one other thing that I had thought to say and, you know, having a, well, I hate to say senior moment, but I guess that's <clears throat> what I have to accept, is um, what's really important is what our intention is. So we might not know all of the consequences of what we're going to do. You know, it's just impossible. You know, you do one thing. Um, I don't know if you had ever heard of, there was a creative artist called um, Rube Goldberg that used to make these elaborate things where you'd start something on one side and all sorts of things would go on. And um, In a way, that's kind of like life is. Um, you know, but saying in, probably in in your case and the case of the person at the at the um, bird refuge that the intention was was pure. It was really to um, alleviate suffering. And so, knowing that one has an intention, you know, and and even if intentions aren't ever entirely pure, kind of knowing what the intention is, then you can act and. Um, you know, if if the consequent if the result isn't as you expected, well, you know, that's some things are just unknowable.
uh, relates to what you just said, what you guys explored, but I um, got to, um, I got into a situation where with a friend who I really care a lot about, um, I um, felt like I needed to say something that I, I knew that it's going to be difficult to say, and I felt like I, I spent the whole month actually contemplating before I sent an email um, out, and I felt that um, it's a, it's a no-win situation because if I say this, um, it's going to hurt her. If I don't say, it's going to hurt me in the long run, and um, and I I guess I guess that's an example when you don't. It's not the question that you don't know whether there's going to be harm, but I, I knew that there's going to be some harm. But I think I went through with it because um, I felt that, I, I don't know, I mean, it's still a question in my mind, but I, I do feel that the intention was really to purify something and to, to say the truth and then also to alleviate both of us from doing things in a false way that might drive us apart even further than we are now. And I guess my intention was to bring us closer. But um, it's hard because she hasn't replied for three weeks now, so I know that it did, it did harm. Um, and I, I asked another friend to look at the email that I wrote, and she said that it was worded very kindly. So that's a little consolation for me, but I don't know, it's just this dilemma of what is it when you want to say the truth and um, but you don't want to harm, cause harm for either other or oneself and when there is not a clear answer of going through with whether it's going to, you know, don't do it if it doesn't. This is a great question. <laughs> and actually, though, I, mean, I really mean that in that the way you framed it and talked about it, uh, you named a number of key qualities that the Buddha um, praises in right speech. So, for example, you said that what you were saying was true. And you also said that your intention was to eventually bring the two of you closer together and more in harmony. So this implies that what you were offering was intended to be of benefit uh, to the situation. And you also said that you had worded it kindly. Um, and so these are three qualities that are important when giving speech. And then um, there's the question of timeliness. And so, you know, did the, was email the best approach or would speech have been better? Did you send it at the right time um, based on conditions in her life where she might have been able to hear that or would another time have been better? So these become the operative questions. And my understanding of right speech is that if you're playing with all of those and you can say that you've done the best you can on those, that actually if it causes disturbance in the person, it was still an okay thing to say. There's a, another teaching where the Buddha points out that he doesn't always say things that are pleasing to people. <laughs> and you know, people don't always want to hear um, the truth, even if it's beneficial. And so then there's the question of, of timeliness. And um, that's often where we have the leverage point. So, I don't know. It sounds to me like you had a lot of really good energy going into what you did. And um, we'll see what the result is, right? But 
sounds like it was within the parameters to me. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Jim? Yeah, I'd say it sounds good. Yeah. And, it, and, and there can be tension, too, between um, wanting to be beneficially honest and wanting to be liked. You know, so some, sometimes saying something that could benefit another person might mean that for some time they're not going to particularly like you. And so then that's your work is to notice what, what that's like. And it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily, if somebody doesn't like what they hear, it doesn't, it's not necessarily harming them, but it might be waking them up to something that um, ultimately needs to be seen, you know, provided it wasn't, I mean, there's, you can bludgeon somebody with the truth, <laughs> So, but it doesn't sound like that was the case. So, well, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, so good. So, in order to settle in, we're going to um, sit for a little while. So, please take a posture that's comfortable, upright, but also relaxed. It can help to begin by feeling the contact of where you're sitting, so your seat against the cushion or the chair or the bench, and your legs or feet against the floor. And if it helps to kind of rock back and forth a little bit or shift just to see that you're balanced where you're sitting. And you can also check internally if you are allowing the support to support you. Have you let go onto the base that you're sitting on, just allowing the earth to support you? You may notice your breath, the sensations of breathing. Perhaps taking a deeper breath than usual. Really breathing in and then as you exhale, inviting ease through the body. Just relaxing into being here having arrived, no longer arriving. Bringing a little bit of attention to the body So feeling the spine, for example, its straightness. It's 
Sometimes I think of the spine as being buoyed upward like a sea plant off the sea floor, coming up off the base that you're sitting on, just floating there. And then the other parts of the body can float around it, like the fronds of the sea plant. The arms are relaxed, legs are relaxed. can help to imagine a small space between the very top vertebra and the base of the skull. Relaxing the neck. Just finding some ease as we sit here. And there may be parts of the body that don't feel so at ease or parts that you're not so well connected with. And then we can be at ease about that in the mind, at ease with how the body is right now. Intending as we sit to keep the attention with the present moment. That may be the sensations of the breath, maybe the sensations of the body. if the mind is busy and thinking or planning or remembering it's okay it's not a problem but when we notice that that has happened just gently allowing the breath the body to re-arise in awareness Gently letting go of the busyness of the mind in a kind and gentle way. offer some some reflections to bring to mind or if you're content with keeping the breath and the body in mind you can continue with that and just let my voice be in the background It can be helpful to bring to mind the goodness of our intentions in doing this practice. 
the intention to find an easeful way to live in the world. The intention to have good relationships. To walk peacefully through the world. To be mindful. To be kind and compassionate. to find freedom. Whatever resonates for you in doing this practice can help to connect with its goodness. to understand that that manifests through our speech our actions how we live this is our life our body, our mind the world we live in bringing attention to it and bringing intention to it is a beautiful and noble thing. May our practice bring bring peace and harmony in our life and in the lives of those we touch and eventually to all beings.
Okay. So let's let's look a little bit more carefully at this factor of right livelihood and kind of the breadth of what it entails. As we mentioned earlier, right livelihood is kind of the crown of the sila steps of the path, the ethical conduct steps of right speech, right action, and right livelihood, or wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. And so I see it as kind of a a culmination of the work of bringing our external behavior into harmony with our heart. So, I mean, what does this word livelihood really mean? I like it because it sounds kind of like lively, but it, um, it really, it means essentially how we sustain our life. How do we sustain our life here? And that's a lot more than just our job or money in particular. And we could say broadly, it's everything that we consume and produce in an economic sense, maybe. So, you know, our food, our water, our residence, our clothing, as well as our means of keeping our bodies healthy and attaining money in the world, if that's necessary for us. And then the things that we put out are our paid work, of course, but also volunteer activities, family activities, participation in our community and hobbies, all the things that we're doing that kind of build up this ecosystem that we're living in, our own world. And it's, it's easy to be seduced into thinking that we'll, we'll kind of get the other stuff in order once we have secured sufficient money from our job, essentially. You know, once I've got that in place, then I can think about some of these other things and really pay attention to that. But I found that in, in practicing with the way I live in the world, uh, it became clear to me quickly that a, a more integrated approach was was necessary. As we apply mindfulness to our lifestyle, we can begin to sense how our lives are part of a larger picture in the world. So maybe a small example is that our purchases have effects in the world, right? So if we buy an apple, uh, we're supporting the store that sold it to us, for example, uh, as well as the distributor, the farmer, and a whole bunch of other people uh, who were involved in that. If we buy an organic apple, then we're adding a certain amount of support to that kind of agriculture. We make choices every day about how we use water, electricity, plastic, paper, oil, as well as our time and our attention. Yeah, so these are resources also. How would we behave if we understood how far-reaching the effects of all of our choices are? You know, what choices would we, would we make? So maybe livelihood can be seen as the the general atmosphere that we create and inhabit in order to sustain ourselves every day. So we can ask questions like, is my world toxic or healthy? Is it undermining or supportive? Is it depleting or nourishing in some essential ways? 
One important thing, maybe to say up front, is that if we practice only with the physical parts of life, so I named a lot of uh, environmental kinds of things, I found that things very quickly become complex, and uh, and they often involve trade-offs. Uh, the physical world does have real trade-offs in it, so it's easy to get entangled in worrying about whether plastic or paper bags are better. <laughs> um, I remember, actually, this is probably really out of date now because we all have cloth bags, but um, there was a cartoon that I saw once that um, when they used to ask at the checkout stand if you wanted plastic or paper, and this cartoon had somebody standing at the checkout stand and the bagger was asking, would you like uh, deforestating paper or landfill-burdening plastic? (laughs) Right, so... And now we all have our reusable bags. But what if they're made of cotton? You know, it's, I don't know if you know that cotton is one of the most pesticide-intensive crops that is grown by humankind and that a significant uh, fraction of global insecticide use goes to cotton alone, um, like more than 10% total of everything we produce. All the insecticides go to cotton. So just think, I don't know, <laughs> there are these trade-offs, right? <laughs> so what I'm pointing toward is that it's essential also to include mental or spiritual components in how we design our ecosystem of our life. So if you buy organic apples, because you think you're supposed to do that, but you do so every moment of it resenting the higher price that you're paying for these apples, I don't know. Maybe the less expensive option is doing more good in your life. I don't know. So there's a lot of factors that go into this, right? If you purchase a hybrid car, but then you find that you feel ecologically superior to all your neighbors because you have this car, you you might watch out for those mind states coming to mind. Um, Or kind of on the flip side, if you experience paralyzing guilt about the inevitably large carbon footprint that you have as an American in the world, uh, that's probably not leading to your happiness. Paralyzing guilt is not a happy state to be in. So, just generally, actually, living in a very um, complex world of thinking and calculating and having anxiety about whether you're doing the best possible thing every moment, uh, that's probably not producing ease of mind for you, right? So, I know that when working with the ethical steps of the path, um, a lot of things suddenly come into awareness, And it's possible to say, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't realize I was doing that, or what about this? And, you know, we we had some questions about that. And it's great to engage uh, with these in a mindful and compassionate way with the understanding that um, a lot of um, back and forth thinking, uh, getting off on long thought trails and whole scenarios might not be leading to peace in your mind. And if one of your intentions was to have compassion for yourself and the fact that you're doing the best you can and to have an intention of bringing uh, peaceful mind states and being able to put that energy out into the world, it's worth um, considering the total picture. So living well within our culture and society and ecosystem does mean including spiritual components you know our intention in doing something our our compassion our care our wish for ease 
So how, how do we do that? How can we bring that about? You're probably not surprised to hear that one of the main components of that is mindfulness, is awareness of um, what we're doing at a given moment and whether it is right then and there leading toward suffering or toward the ease of suffering, toward less suffering. And only you know that in a given moment, is how is this unfolding right now for me? Is it increasing my tension? Um, Is there a lot of something coming up that I'm not able to be mindful of? Or does it feel easeful? Does it feel like there's compassion? Am I able to be aware of what's happening? And so when you start considering in this way, it becomes clear that the right thing to do is going to look different in different situations. This is what we were pointing towards earlier with ethics being somewhat situational um, in the good way, you know, in the way of, of awareness of what's leading toward and away from suffering, what is wholesome, what's unwholesome, and not so much what do I like, what do I not like, or what am I getting out of this, and you know, what am I giving up for this. But more a, a focus on the on the wholesome or unwholesome nature of what's happening. So to tie that into livelihood as you know, as we think of it, as you know, what, we, what it is that we're engaged in and doing in the world, it may mean that a certain kind of livelihood and lifestyle for one person is not right for another person. So this brings up the responsibility to check our own life and how it's going and not try to, say, imitate what somebody else is doing in their livelihood. I know for myself, um, I've had a lot of confusion around which direction to go at certain points in my life. It seemed like there were many options or, or there weren't many options, but I didn't like any of them or something. And I've, at those times, I know in my mind, I've been tempted to look at somebody who looks like their life is together. <laughs> from the outside perspective (laughs) and say, okay, what they're doing seems to be working. I'm going to do that, right? And so so this has been a kind of a form of practice for me is to uh, admit that my own path is my own path and, um, and have the courage maybe or the willingness of some kind to do to go in the direction that feels like it's going to be the most wholesome, you know, the most wholesome next step I can take and not worry so much about the big picture of that. At some point I came to the realization that if at every moment I were to actually take a step that led to less suffering, that would work, (laughs) right? (laughs) If every moment you did that, (laughs) that would be the path. Um, regardless of what kind of story I could tell about how I'd gotten here and where I was going and my plans for this or that, if I just every moment I took a step that led to less suffering in some way, that would add up to a path that was leading to the end of suffering. It's not easy to trust that. So then I guess that leads to the question, how do we know if we're going in the right direction? You know, we've heard a couple of examples today where it wasn't really clear if we were going toward less suffering. You know, it's not like there's a little sign that says more suffering, less suffering, (laughs) quite so clearly. But we can begin to 
get those get that kind of sense through mindfulness. Um, I found that beginning to live and work closer to right livelihood, the feeling is actually one of alignment, is literally one of alignment. Like there's kind of a sense of things uh, pointing in the same direction, if you will. Less struggle, less stress, less fatigue. Even if the work I was doing became harder or became more challenging in terms of requiring more compassion, nonetheless, there was a feeling of less struggle, of less... um, fatigue with doing that kind of work. I think this is a reliable gauge, you know, if if we're finding ways to be less burdened by our life, even if other components of it don't look rationally like they would. We make less money than we did before, for example. That's fine as long as, you know, we have the feeling that our life is aligning when we're going in that direction. This actually makes sense in the progression of the path. If we, if we could step back for a moment and look again at the eight steps of the path. So the, the sila steps of speech, action, and livelihood are intended to support the development of the samadhi steps, which are what come next. We may not have gone over that yet, but those are effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Those are all related to mental development, essentially. And so you can understand that as we settle into work or a livelihood or a way of living that is sort of more aligned and um, feels truer to to, to our values, then that's going to help the mind settle better in meditation and also just in general will feel more settled, more peaceful. So that's how, you know, that's a progression going forward. And then viewed another way, we could say that alignment in our work is the outward manifestation of um, alignment that's present in our mind. You know, some meditation that we've been able to um, bring some calmness in our mind, then we're able to align our lives better. So I think the feedback loop kind of goes in both directions between these two. But there's a lot of a lot of resonance between the sila and the samadhi steps of the path, in my experience. So in this in this broader sense that we're talking about, right livelihood could be about discovering our way of uh, manifesting in the world that is most authentic and most aligned. Which says that, like the other steps on the path, right livelihood comes from within, flowing from our intentions, from our purest intentions. Even though the sila steps are about relationship and often about our outer life in the world, all of them, even livelihood, come from within. They come from our heart. And it can take great courage and great faith, if you will, to live in accordance with our deepest values. It's not necessarily an obvious and easy thing. But doing so, in whatever way we're able to, and even just moving in that direction, is a supreme act of service for ourselves and for all beings. So this is not necessarily a grand lifestyle change, although, I mean, it could be. It could. Livelihood does happen in every moment that we're conscious of how our energy and our attention and our body are being used to support ourselves and all beings from moment to moment. So from the big picture all the way down to, you know, right now, what is it that we're doing? Everyone in this room is using their attention pretty well right now 
could have made other choices. You didn't have to be here. But here we are. So we can always use, choose to use our, our resources of our mind and our body in ways that support peace and service and liberation. So thank you. That's a, a bit of an introduction to the breadth that's possible with this step on the path. So now you're going to get a chance to talk about this. And uh, we're going to have a, we'll have a break after this, but if you, can, if you can wait through that, we'll do a breakout session now. And I'll pass it over to Jim to guide you on how to um, get into groups, and we're going to talk about a question. Thank you. Well, to begin this one, it takes a minimal amount of skill, which is being able to find three other people to form a group of four. So I think you've all done this before, so if you just, you know, see if you could just find uh, a group of four. And if there's, um, we, we may have to have uh, one or two groups of five. I don't, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, there's one other group of three if there's... That's okay. It looks like everybody else is in a group of four. Okay, good. Okay. Okay, so that's the hardest part. <laughs> the rest is easy. So we're going to take a, about um, 15 minutes to kind of go around um, the group, maybe just go either clockwise or uh, counterclockwise. And the questions to discuss, the, the first one is, what aspects of your daily life feel most aligned with your heart's values? So this doesn't have to be trying to find the most you know, perfect answer, but just what comes to mind off, you know, as you just start to let this question um, hang out with this question of what aspects of your daily life feel most aligned with your heart's values? And then the second question is, how could you bring more of your activities into alignment with your heart's values? So kind of what's, how are things aligned now and how might you deepen that alignment in the future? So again, we'll have, um, we'll have 15 minutes and then, um, I'll ring a bell. You'll have a few minutes to finish up and come back together, and then we'll have some time to uh, talk in the larger group. So...
Okay, so you can uh, finish up your conversations. You may want to thank your other group members for their attention and their sharing. And then as you're ready, we can come back into the larger group. Chris and I would really appreciate um, hearing from at least some of you of what came out of doing that exercise. What did you find um, was in alignment with your heart and how might you be able to continue to move in that direction? So uh, we have a, a microphone up here so that we can hear each other. I think in our group we had many different things that all um, were being in alignment as there are different people and we all have different things, um, values of what to be in alignment with. Um, But one of the things that actually led back to your talk a little earlier that I discovered was um, this word courage, um, that in some, the difference between when I'm living in alignment and when I'm not has somewhat to do with my own courage around that um, and that gives me something new to look at when I'm not feeling courageous to live in alignment you know what what is happening there um, you know what is that a, a fear of judgment or whatever um, just gives me something to look at and the difference between being in alignment and feeling very brave to be in alignment in others with a different situation, a different group of people, um, what's stopping me from doing that? Uh, we talked about, <clears throat> sometimes our activities are really interesting to us and sometimes they're not. And when they're not, if we try to be wholehearted, then they become our practice and it's more in alignment. That's great. So finding, finding a way for it to be practice. Yeah. And this is kind of in line uh, about what our group talked about. And the group of four, the rest of the group, are very, very enjoying their work. They're just so blessed at what that they love to do their, um, uh, as their profession, except me. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to admit that, but I really don't like my profession. 
However, I do treat it, treat it as a practice, and I love the connection of the people. So when I go to work, I always trying to find the connection with the people. Um, another thing is that, um, as Kim mentioned, that there's so many choices in our life. If we have that good intention and to make the quote quote right choices on each step, then probably we'll go to the right direction. It just lead us to the right livelihood. Thank you. Uh, I was in that group before. And, uh, you know, one of the points that I didn't get to bring up and something I've been doing now for the last couple of months and something I've been intending to do for many years and it just, you know, I get busy and forget, but I keep a gratitude journal. And I find that with that process alone, every day if I can find one good the thing that I really like during that day that, you know, that I'm grateful for, that it's training my mind to see the good and the pleasure in the world rather than looking at and reacting to something that may result cause me suffering if I'm reacting to it. That's one piece I wanted to share. That's great. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you also, Lydia. The, I had the mic off. <laughs> that came out of um, our group was the idea of connection and just that the things that help us feel aligned are just moments of connection. Um, And I think, I mean, for me, that is really helpful when thinking about livelihood because of the common kind of focus on profession and and it can, for me at least, become so large, like, oh my gosh, what should I do with my life? And how do I like make some humongous difference in the world and save everything and fix everything in the world? And But then realizing that actually for me, those small moments of just connecting with other human beings are what are the moments when I actually feel the most aligned lets me kind of shift that focus to, you know, just like, what is that next step? Not like next like, what am I going to do with my life in the next five years? But literally, like, just how can I work toward, like, just having connection with other human beings who I encounter? Um, And then that can kind of, it, like, takes off some of the overwhelm and the pressure of, like, trying to figure it all out. Great. So more the how than the what. (coughs) And the smaller rather than the bigger. That's great. Thank you. Well, we, um, oh, one more, okay. Um, listening to the last speaker, I just want to make a comment. Um, we were sort of in the retirees' corner over here, and I don't think there are too many people else in that category. Maybe there are some. 
But um, I have to reflect that, um, you know, I'm still looking for that major thing. Like, you know, I wasn't Mother Teresa, and I'm probably not going to be now. So, you know, it's still every day and every moment and building my life from building blocks that are meaningful in the ways that we're talking about. <laughs> okay, well, uh, it's time for us to take a break. So you can certainly continue talking to each other about um, what you discovered. Uh, well, we have tea and... Um, and be back at 2.25, so in 10 minutes. <laughs>